Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, say amen when you find it. It's over toward the back. (laughs) Over toward the back. Turn right. Thank you, God, for allowing us one more privilege this side of eternity to stand in this pulpit and to proclaim your word. For many years, we have stood in this same place and preached your eternal word. And many, many times you have touched me and anointed me to speak and proclaim the goodness of God in his word. Now, I ask you that this morning would be no exception. Touch me and give me clarity. Give me coherence. Give me good memory. And help me, O God, to say the things to these people that you've said to me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. We've used a lot of terms in our study of uh, future events and what is going to happen to this world. So many people talk about the uh, asteroid that's going to hit this world one day or the volcanic, catastrophic uh, volcanic that's going to happen, that's going, that ended the dinosaurs, is going to... Hey, I'm just telling you, uh, God has great plans for this earth. God is not finished with this earth. Amen. He's got great plans. And eventually he will succeed in his will and his plan and his purpose for all of the earth. We're in an interlude right now of uh, events and a uh, historicity that we don't uh, understand fully, but we know it is what we call the day of the open door. It is the time of the long-suffering of God, the grace of God, who has offered a gracious invitation to all who will come to the cross and come to the Lord Jesus with repentance. He says in his word, for everyone who is weary and heavy laden, come to him and he will give you rest. He says to all of those that are of the thirst to come and drink of the fountain of the water of life freely. So these are the days of the invitation and the long-suffering of God, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. These are great days. It's called the church age, and it's called the open door dispensation. In the fourth chapter, the revelator John said these words, and after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. And it said, come hither. Come hither. That means come up. Come hither. Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Now you remember that John... The revelator is writing this material. He has been banished to the Isle of Patmos, which is a barren rock about 17 miles out in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Greece. And he is there deposited by the strong conquering Roman government to be in prison and to uh, work in the rock quarry there and to burst the rocks and to use the gravel and the rocks that they they burst in that penal colony to pave the Roman roads. As the dejectors rode away from Patmos, rode as in with oars in a boat, not rode in a chariot, but rode in a boat away, no doubt they said, we have put a stop to this. We've put an end to all that uh, John has caused us so much grief in Judaism, and we've hushed his mouth. No one will hear his voice anymore. And as they rode away, they felt like they had succeeded in silencing the ministry and the message of John, not knowing that they had dumped him right in the backyard of heaven so that he could see all that was to come to pass for God and his church. Immediately in Revelation 1 and 10, he said, And I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit. 
you'll notice that when God talks to him and speaks to him, it's when he is in the Spirit. And in this instance, the Bible plainly tells us, I was immediately in the Spirit when I heard the voice say to me, Come up higher. And he that was to look upon was like a jasper and a sardius stone. And then there was a rainbow that was around about the throne, and in sight it was like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty elders, that's us, seated on their thrones, and the Bible said they were dressed and clothed in white garments, clothed in white garments, and they had their hands on their heads, they had crowns of gold, crowns of gold. Now, who is this group that is in heaven that wears white garments that is crowned with crowns of gold and they sit in the presence of God? This is none other than those that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, none other than those that have accepted God's gracious invitation to come and to drink of the fountain of the water of life freely. And here they are seen in heaven in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. They are not seen in the earth anymore until Revelation 19 and 11. When John saw, said, I saw the heavens open and I saw a white horse rider. And that is the Lord Jesus. And that is the second coming of Christ. And he says that the armies of heaven would follow him. And that is the first mention of the church from Revelation 4 to Revelation 19 and 11. Now, there are a lot of terrible things that are going to happen in those uh, chapters that are between 4 and 19. In fact, with the loosening of the seals of the seven-sealed book in Revelation chapter 5, it begins all of the wrath and the indignation that will be poured out upon this earth. It will be a time that is called the day of Jacob's trouble. It is a time when God will execute judgment upon those that know not God. It will be a time of wrath and indignation that will be poured out in this earth upon people. There will be pestilence and all kinds of uh, things that will happen. Stars will, asteroids will fall. And there will be much danger and there will be much hurt and much pain and sorrow that people will feel during that time, and it's called the day of Jacob's trouble. It's when God will have judgment upon Israel for not receiving the Lord Jesus. The Bible said, Jesus said this, I came in my Father's name, and you will not receive me. But another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. That is the principal character of uh, the tribulation period, and that is the Antichrist. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible tells us only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, speaking of the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders with all deceivableness of unrighteousness to them that perish who received not the love of the truth that they might be saved then what is the tribulation period for? It's for those who received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So that is not for you. It is not for the church. It is not for anyone that the Lord's blood has purchased. Uh, it is for those who received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, or unsaved people, you might call that group. Then while all of that is going on, we're found in heaven Revelation chapter 4 that I just read in your, your hearing. And then in Revelation chapter 5, it begins the same way as chapter 4. After these things, metatonta is uh, the Greek for that. It means after this has happened, the next thing to come is this. It uh, is a verb that uh, is in the aorist tense, which teaches us that it is showing action, that it is moving forward. So then the next thing that we see is in heaven, chapter 5. If you would please put chapter 5, verse 1 through 14 up. 
I feel like one of those old-time prophecy preachers that put their charts all over the stage. <laughs> don't, don't put them on the stage. Just put them on the screen. We have here a picture of all the redeemed of God in heaven. In heaven. They are gathered around this throne. I saw the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book. A book. Now, Revelation has several mentions of book. And I know that in these days of Kindle and uh, all kind of digital reproduced books that there aren't a whole lot of emphasis about a book, but it's strange that in a time like the tribulation period, there will be books that will be important. I last Sunday quoted to you a verse that talked about God's book of remembrance. God's book of remembrance. That is a book that's very important. I'll talk about it in a minute. And I saw the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Who is he that sits upon the throne? That is none other than the creator God. Almighty, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God is seated on the throne. And he has a book in his right hand. Right is the right hand is the symbol of authority and power and sovereignty. It is a signet of exclusivity. In other words, our God is peerless. There is none like him. I said there is none like him. There is no God like our God. There is one God. Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Hallelujah. And as one God, he sits upon that throne, and in his hand, right hand, he has a book that is written within and without on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, there's something very, very terrible about to take place with the loosening of those seals. When those seals are loosened, that begins the awful time of tribulation period here upon the earth. Amen. In fact, with the loosening of the seventh seal, the, the trumpet will announce that there are vials of wrath, bowls of wrath that will be poured out upon the earth. They're very terrible. They're darkness. They're water turned to blood and that are very similar to what uh, happened in uh, Egypt when Moses went down and preached deliverance to Pharaoh's uh, captives and uh, the, the slaves, the Israelite people. That book is sealed within and without. Ezekiel talked about that book, and he talked about how important that book was and that it was to execute judgment upon them that know not God and those that worship the image of the beast. So that hand is, the right hand of God contains a book. Next verse. And I saw a strong angel, a proclaiming angel, a message-giving angel. Now, how, how many of you in this house know who, which angel that is? Gabriel. Gabriel is the messenger angel. And the Bible called him a strong and mighty angel. And he's proclaiming something with a loud voice. He's, he is very intense and he's very excited and he's making a lot of racket. You can hear him for all over heaven. Proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And then there starts this search for someone who was in the earth, under the earth, above the earth, who was worthy to take the book and to loose the seals thereof. And the Bible said there was no one, no one worthy, no one worthy to take that book and loose the seals thereof. And that brings us to a, a beautiful place in this discussion about the seven-sealed book. It is in the presence of the Lord Jesus. It's in the midst of the throne. It's where all of the activity is taking place. Now, 
Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like the rebellious house of Israel. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein, and he spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. So in other words, the news that Gabriel is bringing here is about a book that is going to open up Pandora's box, as you would say. Will open up all kinds of uh, malevolence and all kinds of evil, all kinds of wrath, all kinds of judgment that people will experience as the result of the contents of that book. So then, when talking about this book, you realize that in the first century, when this revelation was written, there was no printing press, and uh, there was no uh, digitally uh, edited uh, material at that time. It was written on scrolls. It was, this one had seven seals. So some material would be wound up on the scroll, and then a wax would be taken and sealed that with the wax would be hot and heated, and then a signet would go on it and would seal that portion. And then other rolls would be rolled upon that scroll, and the wax would be applied, and the seal would be placed upon it until there were seven seals in this book. In other words, it had seven different divisions or seven different revelations that were given to John and were sealed with the wax and sealed with the signet. And they were asking, who is worthy to do that? You see, when Caesar shut up the tomb of Jesus by putting his seal on that tomb and putting his signet upon that seal. He was saying, nobody breaks this seal. Nobody has authority to break this seal. I am the only human being on the earth that can break this seal. It is placed there to talk about everybody else's unworthiness and mine only worthiness. But the Bible said on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, about the dawning of the day, something petrifying happened to the guards. And they were spellbound and speechless and could not move. And something wonderful happened. An angel came and dared to break the seal and to roll the stone away. What God was saying was greater than Caesar, greater than Pharaoh, greater than any other human being is the Lord our God. And He is the God of resurrection. He is the God of life. He is the God that we worship as being the sovereign God, the one who is all-sufficient and able to do all things. Wow. That scroll was sealed with seven seals, and the search was on to find somebody who was worthy. Worthiness. What a subject. Worthiness. There were 40 million Germans that thought at one time that Hitler was worthy. There were millions of Italians that thought Mussolini was worthy. There were millions of French that thought Napoleon was worthy. There were multiplied millions of those who thought Alexander Great was worthy. But John lamented, and no one was found worthy. 
not George Washington, not any president of America, not any ruler of any parliament. No one was found worthy. And John said, I wept. I wept because no one was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to even look at the contents of that book. And John said that was such a sad thing that he said, I, I fell and I was prostrate and I wept and cried bitter tears because no one was found worthy. Who can open the seals of this book? Who can fulfill God's plan? Who can do the work of God's purpose? Next verse, please. And one of the elders, the four and twenty elders, saith unto me, Dry up your tears and don't weep. Don't cry anymore. I'm glad our God turns tears of sorrow into tears of joy. Our God turns disaster into great victory. Our God turns great loss into great abundance. And those tears that were shed over loss, He will turn around and cause them to become tears of great joy. Weep not, don't cry, because the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. In other words, history's brightest star is the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest of human beings is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one worthy, no man, no human, no person. Only the Lord Jesus is worthy to take the book because He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah he is the root of David, and he hath prevailed. Now, you remember Judah is the tribe from which the kings come. God made a promise to Judah that they would always sit as king upon the throne of Israel. It is the list of the kings, good and bad, all the way back to Judah. And he said, of all the kings, there is only one king that ever came through the lineage and the genealogy from Judah, and that is the Lord Jesus, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Could you give the Lord a good hand clap of praise? The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. That is the only one time in the entire book of Revelation that you find the word lion. Twenty-eight times you find the word lamb. Why only one time as a king, but 28 times as a lamb? Because what he did at Calvary was the greatest battle, the greatest triumph, and no king ever won any battle that can compare to what was won by the Lord Jesus at Calvary's cross. For it was at Calvary that sin was defeated. 
it was at Calvary that mankind was expressing himself as free. And it was at Calvary that the blood was shed. It was at Calvary that redemption was accomplished and applied. It was at Calvary where all of hell was defeated. It was at Calvary where Satan and his cohorts were put to flight. It was at Calvary where God was at his best. That scroll, that seven book scroll tells us about the future that's coming upon this earth. But we're not here. We're in heaven and we're rejoicing. And the next verse, go on to the next verse. I hope you all are ready to really get excited here in a minute. And behold, and lo, in the midst of that throne, the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. As if it had been slain, having seven horns. Seven is the number of perfection. Horn is the symbol of authority and power. So what that verse is saying that is in the Lord Jesus, there is perfect power and authority. Praise God. Seven horns speaks of his power and authority. Also having seven horns, but also seven eyes. Eyes are a symbol of intelligence and revelation. Eyes are a symbol of omniscience, of knowing. What he's saying about our Christ is that he is the all-wise, omnipotent whew, Savior of the world, that there's never been one like him and will never be one like him. That Jesus... Jesus and what he did at Calvary opened up that door, opened that door that John said he saw in the previous chapter that was open in heaven. In other words, if someone asks us, how did you get here? When you get to heaven, someone inquires of you and says, how did you come to be here? You can stand on your heels and you can say of a certainty, it is because of history's brightest star and music's sweetest melody, of history's greatest personality. The Lord Jesus is the reason that I am here and no other reason. Wow. There stood a lamb that had perfect power and a lamb which had perfect wisdom. And it's which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Seven spirits of God has a great connotation. It has to do with gifts and it has to do with uh, people having been empowered to do certain things. God puts gifts and talents in the church. They're not the private possession of any person. They belong to the church of the Lord Jesus. And I might say this, he gave some apostles, and he gave some evangelists, and he gave some pastor teachers. Whew. When God gave ministries to the church, the seven spirits were there to anoint what those servants of God were doing in the name of Christ. Boy, that's good stuff. I got it. Buddy, I'm going through a lot of preaching material this morning, aren't I? Next verse. And he came back and looked, took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Jesus, the Son of God, the Root of David, Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is now being called a lamb, comes and takes the book out of the hand of the Father. 
Now then, that tells me that something Jesus was doing, He is no longer doing. Hebrews 12 tells us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now we know from supporting Scripture that his role there is as intercessor for you and me. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So his main activity at this time, is making intercession for us. But there will come a time when he won't be seated anymore and he'll be standing. The reason why he is no longer seating, sitting is there will not be any more prayers prayed and there will not be any more sins forgiven. And there will not be any more ministry. And there will not be any more. The whole thing changes. And he is no longer sitting there waiting on you to pray. That's all changed. And now he's standing in the midst of the throne. And he's got the book in his hand. I said he's got the book in his hand. The book through which all of the judgment is going to be poured out, Jesus is holding the book. Is this the Bible now? I don't write this stuff. I just preach it. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. What are you saying, Pastor? Those four living creatures that are attendants to the throne, that now are at the throne crying, Holy, holy, holy. Night and day in the presence of God, these living creatures are crying, Holy, holy, holy. But they are joined by the 24 elders, which is us. And the Bible said we fell down before the Lamb. We knelt before Him having every one of them harps. Well, Brother Irwin, I don't play a harp. Well, one day you'll have a harp. And golden vials that are full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, who has got that? The 24 elders have in their hands bowls of incense. Now we learn in Old Testament Leviticus that those vows of incense, what they intend to do is smoke up the place. Because for a priest to go into the Holy of Holies, He's got to smoke that place up so God can't see his humanity. Because no man can stand in his presence and live. So he's got to go into that smoky haze and bear the needs of the people and take them to God in the Holy of Holies. Did you notice there in that scripture we read that all around the cross, all around the throne, rather, there is this sea of crystal. And there is this golden laver that has suddenly turned into an emerald. A precious stone. It's no longer needed to wash people. It can only now sit there and testify to the greatness of our God. It is no longer used by any priest to wash anymore because that time has passed. Now, that golden labor exists only to talk about the beauty and the lordship of the Lord Jesus. And all of us 
fall on our faces before our God and we give him worship and we give him praise and we have in our hands the bowls of the incense. And he said, that odor that's coming up out of those bowls is the prayers of the saint. Precious in the eyes of the Lord. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the prayers of his people. Did you know that every prayer that you pray is being bottled up, David said in the Psalms? That when you pray your prayer, that the Lord hears your prayer and, and puts it in a container somewhere? That one day when you worship in heaven, you're going to have that bowl and you're going to have that vial and in it will be the prayers that you've prayed. Isn't that wonderful? To know that your prayers are being kept by God in a sacred place. Wow, that's fantastic. To know that our God has reserved for us such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And they sang. Now let's get the tense of that verb right. Now this is the King James Version. In the ASB, American Standard Version, it, it says, and they sing a new song. In other words, the verb, the tense, is not past, it's present. Which means that we keep on singing. It means that that song has no interlude. It means that song has no second verse. It means that song doesn't need to rest to let you catch your breath. That, that song is a song we sing, and they sing a new song. Saying, Thou art worthy. Jesus, Thou art worthy to take that seven-sealed book, that one that no one else could open. That one that history could not provide one person for. Jesus, you're worthy to take that book and to open the seals. For thou wast slain. In other words, our worthiness and your worthiness is not based upon being the lion but our worthiness and your worthiness is based upon your being a lamb. For thou wast slain. The death, the voluntary shedding of his blood at Calvary was the greatest event of all history. For when Jesus died on the cross, thou hast redeemed us unto God by thine own blood. You know, many people talk about evangelical preachers who preach about the blood of Jesus. I even had a professor in seminary to tell me years ago, he said, you preachers need to stop preaching about the blood of Jesus. That that is too gory. It's too gruesome. And we don't need to insult the intelligence of our people by asking them to believe something like that. That classroom was as quiet as you are right now. And back somewhere behind me, I heard some very brave student. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me White as snow, no other 
Fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. You say this world would like to philosophize that away. This world would like for us to modernize and take the blood out of the Bible and take the blood out of redemption. But in a courtroom where no one stands but Jesus, and we bow to our faces in His presence, and we sing the redemption song, Thou art worthy to take the book, because Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God of every people, language, tongue, and nation, and hath made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign with Him upon the earth. There's coming a time when God's people will reign. There's coming a time when this whole process will be reversed. I want to give you one more thing before I leave you today. Those rolled up scrolls, come on Olivia and help me quit. Those rolled up scrolls are very important. The document, that scroll is made impressive by seven seals, apparently fixed on the edges of the scroll in such a way that the seals must be successfully broken if the scroll is to be unrolled and read. But there's another reason for the seven seals, which is suggested by a knowledge of the two cultural and historical practices of John's day. First is the custom of the Romans. The Roman custom of making a will was that a testator would be selected. And that testator, each of the seven witnesses, seven witnesses had to be provided for that testator. And for each of the seven witnesses, there was a seal. In addition to that, there was a process known as selecting a very reliable friend. A very reliable friend. And he would return the property to the rightful heirs. That very reliable friend was selected who for a coin, he would purchase the property for the family. And in that way, the property would become the property of the reliable friend. But when the testator died, then that faithful friend, that reliable friend, would take the property and return it back to the rightful heirs. Are you getting that? No? Well, let me say it this way. If you wrote your last will and testament, in Roman times, there would be an official who was called a testator that would rule over that. He would be the one that would be the one to give you your inheritance. You would select seven witnesses that would come and witness that event, that that testator owed you the money of your inheritance. Well, you would then choose a faithful friend. And that faithful and reliable friend would take the property and own it himself until the testator who made the will dies, then that faithful friend would take the inheritance and he would give it to you. And that's why you sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. That's why you quote the word of God, greater love hath no man than this, than he would lay down his life for a friend. I want to tell you, you have a reliable and a faithful friend whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has purchased your redemption, and he is holding your redemption until the day that you'll receive your inheritance when he's going to give it to you. Praise God. Isn't that powerful? That God has given us the opportunity to claim Jesus as our friend. Listen to the Hebrew custom now. In the Hebrew custom, it involves what goes on at the temple a good bit. Criswell, A.J. Criswell, points out that if a Jewish family were to lose its property or its possessions by some kind of misfortune or distress, 
their property could not be permanently taken from them. That's in the Old Testament law, the law of Jubilee. And the kinsman redeemer protected them against that. However, their losses were listed in a scroll and sealed seven times. And then the conditions necessary to purchase back the land and their possessions were written on the outside of the scroll. And when a qualified redeemer could be found who could meet the requirements of the reclamation, the one who had taken the property was required to return it to the original owner. What Satan stole from you, Jesus got it back. What terrible misfortune that happened that caused you to lose your property, lose your land. Jesus got it back. And you know why? This had to be a, a redeemer. It had to be a kinsman redeemer. You remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? That when Boaz saw Ruth gleaning in his fields, that he told the people in the fields, leave some for her. And the Bible calls Boaz a kinsman, redeemer, who helped her get back all that she had lost. For you see, the doctrine of recapitulation says this, what we lost in Adam, we regained in Jesus Christ. How then, pastor, am I kin to Jesus? How can he be my kinsman redeemer if I and he are kin in what way are Jesus and I kin we are kin in the fact that we worship an almighty God but he's not a human angels were never intended to rule and reign in the earth angels were never intended to do what Jesus did. We are kin to Jesus in the fact that He became a human being like us. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. My kinship to Jesus is we've both been through the human experience. And as man, He stood at the grave of Lazarus and He cried, because he lost his friend. But as Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible said, and Lazarus came out of the tomb. And Jesus said, take those grave clothes off of him. I preach a sermon sometimes about why are you still wearing those grave clothes? If Jesus has called us from death unto life, if Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, has procured for us a way that we can recover all that Adam lost, all of the estrangement, all of the failure, bringing sin into the world, bringing death into the world, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, paid it all for us. Jesus paid it all for me. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Stand with me, please. A lamb. Not the victory that a king won, but the victory that a lamb won. Did you know sacrificial lambs in Israel weren't like all other lambs. Did you know that? No, they weren't. They were special. They were treated special. How many of you have got a puppy? Got a cat? Parakeet? You know what I'm getting at, don't you? You know how you faithfully take care of that pet? 
And you talk to it in silly little tones. You call yourself mama to it. And daddy, papa. Well, that sacrificial lamb was one who lived in the home with the family. He lived in the house with the family. He was loved and fed and cared for like family until the day came when that lamb had to shed its blood and lose its life. I'm so glad many years ago that I accepted the lamb into my home. And I've loved that lamb. I've talked to that lamb many times when I was hurting so bad. I've embraced that lamb and held tight to that lamb when life had given me its worst. But there came a time when that lamb had to give its life for me. And I love that lamb today because that lamb first loved me. Thank you, God, for allowing us to be in your house today. Thank you for allowing us to learn about some things that will take place in the future. And oh, we're reminded of that old song, Oh, I want to see him look upon his face. Let us sing forever of his saving grace. On those streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. God, I want to be in that number. And I want you, O oh Lord, to make everyone in this house today rapture ready, ready for that day to come. May all of us, O oh Lord, embrace the Lamb and embrace the victory and embrace the inheritance. May we go from this place today, O oh Lord, ambassadors for the Lord Jesus. Dismiss us in your care. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.